All right. So Ephesians chapter 1. Now, originally I was going to look at verses 3 through 14. Then I realized there's a lot of stuff here. So I'm just going to look through verses 3 through 6. Uh, we're actually going to look at this section in three parts is my plan. So we're going to look at 3 through 6 this morning, 7 through 10, Lord willing, next week, and then 11 through 14, Lord willing, the week after that. But I did mention that verses 3 through 14 in, in the original uh, Greek is one long sentence. <laughs> and I said last time I'd, I'd try to read it all in one breath if I could. So are you ready? I'm kind of i got to sort of like oxygenate, oxygenate, however, you know, bring air into my lungs here. <sighs> okay, you ready? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Sorry, I can't do it. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through the blood, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Glory. All right, so I couldn't get through it in one breath, but it is one sentence with a lot of punctuation. It's, it is the greatest Holy Spirit-inspired run-on sentence in all of Scripture, okay? Um, but that's okay. So if the Spirit-inspired run-on sentence, then, then that means you can use run-on sentences when you write, right? No. Anyway, so last time, just a little brief recap, we... St- just looked at the first couple verses of Ephesians. We looked at some introductory matter. Uh, we looked at the author, of course. Uh, author names himself. It's Paul. There's no reason to doubt that Paul was the writer of this letter. Uh, he is writing to a group of Christians who are in Ephesus. Uh, we looked at that because in some of the earliest manuscripts of Ephesians, uh, the word Ephesus there is missing. There is a blank. Uh, it is believed that this was perhaps a form letter or a generic letter that he wrote to churches in the Ephesian area. Because when Paul was there, he ministered to the Ephesians for two years, right? He established a church, and we looked at Acts 19 when he established that church, and we were told that uh, while he was there in that two-year ministry, he also uh, ministered throughout all of Asia. So it's it's not unusual to, uh, and it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that Paul then also established churches in that region. So he writes this letter to those Ephesian churches. So he writes to the Ephesians uh, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, and uh, he gives a typical greeting there, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, This book is one of his prison epistles, so it would have been written later in his life. It's not his last letter. Uh, His two letters to Timothy and Titus, those are his last 
three letters uh, written uh, very close to the time of his death, uh, his martyrdom. Uh, this would have been written around 60 to 62 AD, depending on when you date his imprisonment in Rome. Uh, the end of the book of Acts, Paul is under house arrest. And in, when he's under house arrest, that's when he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So those are his four prison epistles. Um, it really breaks down into two big sections, chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6. Uh, and the idea that we're getting across here in this um, book is that we're going to see the glory of Christ and how the glory of Christ is manifest in the life of the church. That's sort of like the theme for the book. The glory of Christ manifest in the life of the church. Um, there's a lot of key doctrines in here. You see the mystery of the church, the blessings of Christ, how the body of Christ is blessed. These are all things that you see in this letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians. So those are just some of the highlights from last time. And as we head into this passage here that we see before us, it, like, the, like I said, this longer section here, 3 through 14, um, if you have headings in your Bible, you might see something like spiritual blessings in Christ or things like that. Paul is taking sort of, from this point, he's taking like an eternal perspective. He is looking at the church essentially in eternity past as it is chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Those are going to be the three sections of this passage as we're going to see them in the, uh, this week, next week, and the week after, again, Lord willing. How the work of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is at work in the lives of believers before the foundation of the world, but sealed by the blood of the Lamb. And then, of course, sealed by the Holy Spirit until the end. Those are the things that we'll see as we look at this passage. Uh, saved in eternity past, it is a Trinitarian work. All three persons are united in this one labor. Uh, they, are, they are together. They are of one. Uh, they are not opposed to one another. There's some who like to think that Jesus came to redeem uh, the church from an angry father, that he came to pay the price of an angry father. No, Jesus was sent in love, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Not that God was so angry with the world that Jesus went on his own to save us from the wrath of God. He did save us from the wrath of God, but God sent him in love. We see that even in our passage this morning. In love, he predestined us. So God is not an angry God in the sense that Jesus has to make him happy with us. The Father is a loving Father who sends his Son to redeem the church. Another thing you're going to notice, too, and I was doing a count on this, just in these verses, really, the first 14 verses, if you include um, verse 1 as well, uh, the phrase, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, through Christ, appears 12 times. There's an emphasis here. Paul is making an emphasis that everything that we have is by virtue of our union with Christ. That's what those phrases stand for. In Christ, in the beloved, in him. So you'll see that emphasized throughout, not just this passage, really throughout the whole book. Um, this idea of union with Christ. Uh, if you've been with us any through any amount of time since I've been here, and maybe even with some ministers before, union with Christ is very important. It is through our union with Christ that we receive all of the blessings, not some, 
not half, not a few. All of the blessings of salvation are ours through our union with Christ. In fact, it is our union with Christ that allows us to partake in those blessings. It's, we don't come to Christ for the blessings. We come to Christ because He is the blessing. He is the pearl of great price. He is the great treasure, the hidden treasure. I remember hearing, actually reading a fairly well-known uh, Bible teacher and commentator who is now with the Lord, so I would imagine by this time his theology is correct, but he mentioned that, that the church is the pearl of great price, that the church is the treasure hidden in the field that Christ then finds and is willing to give up everything for. No. No. Christ is the pearl of great price. Christ is the hidden treasure that we, when we find it, are willing to give up everything to obtain. So, that by way of introduction. So as we look at these verses this morning, verses 3 through 6, our emphasis today, um, my theme this morning is basically this. The Father is to be praised because he has blessed us, chosen us, and predestined us in Christ, all to the praise of his glorious grace. You're going to see that, right? That sort of kind of bookends this passage. If you look at verse 3, blessed be the God and Father. If you look at verse 6 at the end, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So this idea is kind of bookending this passage here, verses 3 through 6. The Father is to be praised because he has blessed us, he has chosen us, and he has predestined us in Christ, all to the praise of his glorious grace. So first in verse 3, we're going to see blessed in Christ. Um, again, chap, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, I call it a mountain peak passage. Uh, all scripture, of course, is breathed out by God. All of it is, is profitable for us. But let's face it, some portions of scripture are more profitable for us, <laughs> depending on what point in life you are. Um, I remember Derek Thomas uh, if you know who Derek Thomas is, he's affiliated with Ligonier Ministries. Uh, I think he's Welsh or Scottish or Irish. I don't know. He's got an accent, okay? And it sounds really cool when he speaks. Anyway, Derek Thomas said, yes, all scripture is breathed out by God, but when I'm on my deathbed, please do not read to me from 1 Chronicles chapters 1 through 9. Read to me from Romans 8. I want comfort on my deathbed, okay? Yes, it's all profitable. It's all inspired by God. It all has a purpose. It's all for our good, but some passages just stand out more than others. And I believe Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14 is one of those passages. It's a mountain peak passage. And it begins with the words here that you see here, blessed or blessed, however you want to say it, depending on if you like to put that little, you know, make it a two-syllable word. I know some of our hymns like to do it just to kind of even out the, the number of beats in the stanza, but blessed or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this same uh, opening in 2 Corinthians, the same exact opening in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And Peter himself also uses this same opening in his first letter, chapter 1. It's all chapter 1, verse 3. So, you know, if you're, if you're looking for symbology in the numbers, you know, you can say, hey, you know, there's a theme between chapter 1's verse 3's in the Bible. But at 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this idea here of blessed be God, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sense that Paul is using it, in the sense in which Peter used it, it is really to be meant to convey the idea of praise, worthy, worship, praise be to God and the Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worthy for worship is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed, eulogetos, eulogy. A good word, as I said, meant to convey the idea of praise and worship to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, just by sheer fact, He is the Creator. He is to be praised and worshiped, right? That's the idea. We are the creature. He is the Creator. Just by the sheer fact that He spoke us into existence, that is enough for us to praise and worship Him. Right? That's what Paul gets across in Romans 1 when he is, con- when he is condemning the sin of, of the unbelievers. He says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness, unrighteousness suppress the truth. He goes on and says in 24 of chapter 1, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, uh, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who Paul then says, who is blessed forever. Amen. Part of the reason why God's wrath is being revealed against the ungodliness of men is because they substitute true worship for the Creator God to worship things that He has created. Nature, sexuality, whatever, yourself. <laughs> you know, These are things we substitute in order to worship because we are made to worship. And if we do not worship God, we will worship something else. That's just a state, that's just a fact of the matter. God is to be praised and worshipped solely for the fact that He is the Creator. But then, even more so, as we see here, as we just looked, right, in, in 2 Corinthians 1, He is to be praised and worshipped because He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The One who strengthens us in our trials so that then we can then strengthen others when they go through trials. That's how Paul opens up 2 Corinthians. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the God of all mercies. The God of comfort. Not comfort like you're sitting in a nice, comfortable chair. Comfort means to strengthen. It means to fortify someone. God fortifies us in our trials for the purpose and when we see others going through a trial, then we can fortify them. We can comfort them with the comfort with which we have been comforted ourselves. God is to be praised and worshipped because as Peter says, He has begotten us to a living hope. He has, he has promised us an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for us. And then here, in Ephesians 1, God is to be praised and worshipped. Why? Because He has blessed us in Christ. In Christ. Again, that idea of union with Christ. We are blessed not because we are worthy to be blessed. We are blessed not because we have earned or deserved anything to be blessed. We are blessed because we are united to Christ And we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. How many spiritual blessings? 
Every. All of them. Right? There's not a single spiritual blessing that we have that is not ours in Christ. All we need, all we desire, is ours in Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 8. I've referenced this passage many, many times. But there, you know, again, to sort of draw on the theme of the pearl of great price, uh, Paul, when he recognized Jesus Christ as his righteousness, says in chapter 3, verse 8, indeed, I count everything a loss. Right? I mean, this is Paul's uh, moment where he's kind of giving his testimony to the Philippian church, and he says, look, you know, when I was an unbeliever, when I was... You know, uh, before I saw Christ, I was a Pharisee. I was, I, you know, I, I put all of my eggs in my basket. I had, you know, I had it all. I had the pedigree. I had the performance. I had everything. I was a, a zealous Pharisee. I was a persecutor of the church. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a tribe. I'm a Benjaminite. I'm, I'm all these things. I'm super Jew, if you will. <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, and I said, everything I thought I had that was gain is now loss. And he's okay with it. He says, look, I'm willing to count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In order that I may gain him. I want to be found in him. All we need or desire is found in Christ. He alone is the pearl of great price. He alone is the treasure, the hidden treasure of great worth. So first, note that our blessings that we have are because, again, we are in Christ. Our union with Christ. Our connection to Christ by faith. Right? John talks about this in chapter 15 of his gospel where he says, Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. If we are united to him, if we abide in him, if we are connected to him, we have life. We have vitality. It is through that we bear much fruit. We are united to him. How are we united to him? By a Holy Spirit wrought faith. So first, our blessings that we have are because of our union with Christ. It is the foundation of everything we have in Christ. And secondly, note also that our spiritual, our blessings are spiritual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. The word there is pneumatikos. It means it corresponds to the Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that these blessings are invisible. It doesn't mean that these blessings are immaterial. We have sort of that kind of duality in our mindset. We think Spirit, well, that's invisible. Uh, matter, that's you know, stuff we see. Uh, no, it means that it, it pertains to the Holy Spirit. These are blessings that come to us by the Holy Spirit, through the instrumentation of the Holy Spirit. They are blessings that pertain, if you will, to the age to come. They are not blessings that pertain to this world. Now, this world has many fine things with which that we can enjoy. Many of those things we have to enjoy in moderation, but we can enjoy many of the things. A sunrise, a sunset, uh, family, we can enjoy vacations, we can enjoy entertainment. 
But if that's where your hope is, if that's where your uh, lasting uh, pleasure is, you're going to be sorely disappointed because those things will fade away when this age fades away. You know, the spiritual blessings we have are things that are pertaining to, as I like to call it, the heavenly, or the age to come, I should say, the age to come. These, these are spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings such as uh, things such as our adoption, things such as our redemption, things such as our election, our preservation, our sanctification. All of these things are ours in Christ. They are the spiritual blessings that we have. Then note third, that these blessings are in the heavenly places. So he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. This is where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. When Jesus Christ was raised and he spent 40 days with the disciples, after that he, was, he ascended to heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. That he worked, that is God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The heavenly places refers to where God is, where Christ is. It's not, you know, in the sky. <laughs> it is a spiritual realm, right? It is a realm that is, in a sense, invisible to our eyes. Look again, chapter 2, verse 6. God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in a sense, because Christ is our head, he is the head of the church, we are his body, the fact that Christ is already in heaven at the Father's right hand, there is a sense in which we are already there with him, yet not yet fully there with him. Jesus Christ is there, we are there in a sense because our head is there. And we'll be there fully when Christ returns. So that's chapter 2, verse 6. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Paul talks about the mystery that was hidden for all ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this wisdom, this, this mystery is, is revealed now so that all the angelic hosts, if you will, will know of what God has planned from eternity past. So these spiritual, you know, heavenly places, it's kind of what Jesus talks about, right, in Matthew's Gospel. You've seen that, you know this passage well, where he talks about do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, you know, things of this earth. Again, he's not saying that the things of this earth are inherently evil. It's just they're inherently earthly. And they, you know, it, it, these are things that will not last, right? They will not come with us. You can't take it with you. These are just heaven, you know, earthly treasures. Do not lay your tre- do not focus on earthly treasures. Why? Because moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth, neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. And I just read this passage earlier. 1 Peter 1, right, where Again, Peter talks about how we have been, uh, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of that. And what have we been saved to? We have been saved to an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. 
kept in heaven, the heavenly places. So this treasure that we have, this, 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 uh, these blessings that we have are kept in heaven for us. So when it comes right down to it, we who are in Christ by a spirit-wrought faith are blessed far beyond what we could ever hope for or imagine. I mean, if you think of the, think of the best day you can think of in this life, the heavenly blessings that we have, the spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places is, is going to far outstrip that. Far outstrip that. That is ample reason to give God praise and worship. Well, second, verse 4, chosen in Christ. So he doesn't stop there. Paul gives us another reason to praise and worship the Father. Why? Because he chose us, again, in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world. Now, this is a verse that often is used to support a doctrine called divine election, uh, by which God God, um, chooses us in Christ, election by God, but just to re- reflect for a moment here on what Paul is saying, let's, let's just push election off for a moment, just mo- focus on what Paul is saying here. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before there was a world, before there was a universe, before there was an Emmanuel Reformed Church, before there was a United States of America, before there was anything, a heaven and an earth, God chose you. God chose you. When Paul says us, he's referring to the people of God. He chose you. That word chose carries the idea of choosing for oneself. This is all wrapped up in what is called, we call it often, God's eternal decree. If you've got a hymnal in front of you, I invite you to take it in the back. There's a section there for our confessional documents. And it's the Belgic Confession. And it is Article 16. I'll tell you the page in a moment. It's page 879 in the back of the hymnal. So page 879. This is the Belgic Confession. This is a confessional document um, that was published in 1561. So just a little, little, you know, little time ago. <laughs> um, <clears throat> this would have been, this is one of the first uh, reformed confessional documents of the Reformation era. Of course, you know, Luther's would have been first. But think about it. I mean, Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in 1517. So this is merely, what, 34 years after, no, 44 years after that? So not a long time, okay? So we're, we're still in that kind of first generation, maybe entering into the second generation of the Reformation. Well, here, the authors of the Belgic Confession say in Article 16, which is titled Eternal Election, we believe that all the posterity of Adam, that is, all of, at, all of the people that were born after Adam, being thus fallen into perdition, well, we believe that you know, Adam led the human race into sin, into the fall. So everyone who is born after that is born into sin. So thus fallen into perdition and ruined by the sin of our first parents, that's Adam and Eve, 
God then did manifest himself, he revealed himself, such as he is. That is to say, merciful and just. Merciful, since he delivers and preserves from this perdition, from this sin, from this judgment, all whom he in his eternal and unchangeable counsel of mere goodness has elected in Christ Jesus our Lord, without any respect to their works. He is just in leaving others in the fall and perdition wherein they have involved themselves. So here we've got in this, in this article the eternal decree, the plan of God, the, the, the election of God in which having, looking at the human race as fallen, God in mercy chooses some and leaves the rest in their sin. Now this is not the only place in Scripture we see this doctrine supported. I'm going to, you don't need to turn with me, I'm just going to kind of rapidly go through some of these passages. Um, God chose Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, we, we read this, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7, Moses, speaking on behalf of God to the people of Israel, tells them, look, when God chose you, it wasn't because of anything you did, it wasn't because you were special, Verses 6 and 7 of Deuteronomy 7. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his covenant to a thousand generations. God, through Moses, tells Israel, I chose you. Not because you were special, not because you were good, not because you were holy, not because you were more numerous, more powerful, better than anybody else. I chose you because I made an oath. I made a covenant with your forefathers, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's how God introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who made covenant with them, and now I am fulfilling that covenant by redeeming your people. So God chose them. Psalm 135, verse 4. Again, recalling the election of Israel. For God has chosen Jacob. Jacob is just a euphemism for Israel. God has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel as his own possession. Now looking at the New Testament, in Acts 13, this is Paul during his first missionary journey. He is proclaiming the gospel in Antioch of Pisidia. And when he gets to the end of that, his sermon, we see that many come to faith. We see in chapter 13, verse 8, And when the Gentiles heard this, Paul's sermon, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All those who were chosen by God when they heard that sermon believed and came to faith. 
another passage, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is one of Paul's earlier, earlier letters. Paul there says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So Paul is praying on behalf of the Thessalonians. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. That's the means by which God completes his act of election. He chooses, and then the means by which the chosen are come to faith is through the preaching of the gospel. So you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in, the, in Titus. I'm just, I'm just showing you how this is kind of throughout the Bible here. Titus chapter 1. Paul's writing to his protege, Titus. He is in the town of Crete, on the island of Crete, I should say. In Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the very opening of the letter, Paul there says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised when? Before the ages began. One final passage again, back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, his, the way he opens his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, chosen exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So we see all of these passages, and I could point to others, support this idea of God's divine election. Now, some don't like this doctrine because they feel it removes all human agency. But if you consider the fact that we are fallen, if you consider the fact that because of Adam's sin, we are fallen in, Christ, we're fallen in Adam, we are born in sin, Paul says that in chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, and so on. We are, in a sense, the walking dead. Right? You know, if you've watched that show on AMC, I think it's finally over. They, but anyway, you know, you are the walking dead. You are, we are, in a sense, alive, but dead, spiritually. What has to happen? God has to do something. God has to do something. Because of the fall, we will not respond. We will not choose God. If God didn't choose us, we would not be saved. 1 John 4, 9, we love God because why? He first loved us. And notice our election, Paul says here, is before the foundation of the world. Before the grounding of it. Before the, the support of it. Before the, 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 you know, the, the establishment of the world. This is not a type of foreknowledge view in which God you know, looks down time and sees that well, so-and-so is going to believe in me. Okay, so I'll choose them because they are going to believe in me. It's kind of like a vicious cycle there. Uh, this is not that type of view of election, as some suggest. This is a type in which God, because of his own free will, chooses those who will be in Christ when before the foundation of the world. Now, the purpose of our election 
As Paul says here, we are chosen before the foundation of the world. Why? For the purpose that we should be holy and blameless before him. The words in love really probably more belong to the rest of verse 5. Though, you know, it could fit either way. But we are set apart. That's what holy means. Holy means set apart. We are sanctified. We are set apart by God for a purpose. Blameless. We are to be spotless, to be pure. That's the point of our election. So if we, Christ comes into this world and he redeems us and he cleanses us and he sanctifies us and he makes us pure and spotless by his blood. Right? Chapter 5, verse 27, in reference to um, husbands and wives there, Paul makes the reference that husbands are to love their wives. How? As Christ loved the church that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of, with, of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ comes into this world to make those who are chosen before the foundation of the world holy and blameless. Same thing in Colossians 1, verse 22. Christ is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us, the church, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So the purpose of our election before the foundation of the world is that we will be appear before God blameless and holy. And this is done through the work of Christ. So before we ever chose God, he first chose us. We love him because he first loved us. Divine election is a, is not a, 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 divine election is not a club to beat other people over. Right? It's not to say, ha-ha, I'm electing, you're not. Right? If anything, it should humble us. Why? Because... It is, not my, it is not my own choosing. I choose, I come to faith because God made me alive in Christ. That's what we'll see later in chapter 2. How are the dead in trespasses and sins saved? Verse 6 of chapter 2. We are, sorry, chapter 4. God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. I stand here before you as a Christian because I was once dead in my trespasses and sin, and God made me alive in Christ. And that is not a reason for me to boast. That's what he says in verses 8, 9, and 10. This is not a cause for boasting. God didn't choose me because I'm special. He chose me because he set his love upon me before the foundation of the world. The same with anyone who is in Christ. And this is not a cause of boasting. This is not a cause to say, Look at me, I'm so special. No, this is a cause for praise and worship. We worship God because of this. We are humbled because of this. And we praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Finally, and looking at the time, got to speed things up here. Okay, crank it into third and fourth gear. Predestined through Christ, verse 5. Third and final reason Paul gives to praise and worship the Father is our predestination, as he says here uh, in Greek. The word there just means to decide beforehand, to predetermine. 
We are predestined through Christ. Verse uh, 5, he says there, He predestined us, that is God, predestined us for adoption through Christ according to the purpose of his will. So what is the purpose to which God has predestined us? He has predestined us to be adopted. Adopted. We are, uh, we are made sons and daughters of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is a great blessing. right? Jesus, of course, is the only begotten Son of the Father. We are sons and daughters of God through Christ. Why? Because he adopted us. We were predestined. We were chosen in advance Decided beforehand, it was predetermined that we would be adopted. So we were blessed in Christ and chosen before the foundation of the world to be predestined for our adoption through, that is, by means of Christ. We've looked at these passages before. If you remember in Galatians chapter 4, we are sons and heirs, but, God, but when the fullness of time had come, chapter 4, verse 4, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that is us, so that why? We might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So because we are adopted, the Spirit comes into us, and He attests to the fact that we are sons and daughters of God by crying in our own hearts, by confirming in our own hearts, Abba, Father. So we are no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, then an heir through God. That's the same exact kind of thought that Paul has in Romans 8, verse 15. Where there he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Later on in Romans 8, where Paul, there, that great passage that begins with verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are predestined to be conformed into the image of God, to the image of Christ, I should say, so that we can be his brothers, right? That's, that's the purpose of our creation. That's the purpose of our election and predestination is that we will be like Christ. Christ is the perfect image of God. Humanity is now a broken image of God. And what Christ does is he comes and redeems us and restores that image. We are then predestined to be in the image of Christ so that Christ will have many brothers and sisters. This was all done in love. This is all done in love. The end of verse 5. All done according to the purpose, literally there, the good pleasure of his will. God is well pleased in the salvation of the elect. The church is a love gift from the Father to the Son. Right? You know, I've used this motif before. This is the greatest love story ever told. The Father chose a bride for his Son. The Son comes into the earth and redeems that bride and presents her to the Father, spotless. Pure. God set his love upon us before the world was formed in eternity past. Again, more outpouring of God's goodness and grace, his predestination of our, of our adoption to his family so that we can receive all of the spiritual blessings 
with which we have been blessed in Christ. And then finally, real quick, verse 6. Purpose of all this, as I said, this book ends well with verse 3, is to redound to the glory, the praise of his glorious grace. We have been blessed, chosen, predestined to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Again, that union with Christ, blessed in the beloved. God's grace is indeed glorious. We see this in verse 12, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Think about how Paul closes Romans 11, where he says, you know, how vast God is and how amazing his purity is and his glory. We are to praise the beloved. So as I bring this quickly to a close, the glory of Christ in the life of the church is first seen by the fact that the church is chosen by the Father in Christ. And this is necessary for the Father to choose because due to the fall we are, as Paul says again, dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked. Again, this more glory to God because of that. And really the big take-home for us is that, okay, I could sit here and talk to him blue in the face about the doctrine of election, but it's not so that we can go around and spout, oh, look, I know about the doctrine of election. No, doctrine always leads to what we call doxology, right? It's the three Ds. Doctrine leads to doxology, which then leads to duty. And the doxology part is the praise. We learn this so that we can praise God more fully, more informed. Why should I praise God? Because he chose me, because he blesses me, because he predestined me. That is to the praise of his glorious grace. Doctrine leads to doxology. Paul doesn't write this to increase our knowledge, but to increase our praise and worship. And the good news is that we are blessed. We are blessed, chosen, and predestined in Christ. We are established before the foundation of the world. Our salvation is secure. Why? Because the Father chose us, the Son redeems us, and the Spirit will, as we will see in coming weeks, seals that inheritance to us and preserves us until the end. So I'll stop here because I'm at time. Next time, we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. This is the work of the Father. We're going to see next time the work of the Son.